Awesome date. Sometime in the future. Awesome topic. Running, running, running. This is the Awesome Cast. And welcome back to the Awesome Cast, your podcast for everything awesome. I'm Basil. I'm Kevin. And joining us from the stately land of Florida, I'm Gerald Rathkold from Anime World Order. So here we are again, once again, recording an Awesome Cast with a wonderful guest host. And as always, you can find Gerald's stuff at AnimeWorldOrder.com. You can find our stuff at TheAwesomeCast.com. O-S-M-C-A-S-T.com. You can check out the Index of Awesome, all our previous episodes of the Awesome Cast. You can leave us comments in the comments section for every podcast. You can send us an email at awesomecast at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 209-AWESOME-LINE. And so, yeah. 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 <laughs> we were totally recording this podcast before I discovered it wasn't actually recording. So now we get to cover Lost Territory. And pretend to sound excited about it all over again. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> and so, previously on the Awesome Cast, we were talking about going to cons in short succession. Actually, that's what we were talking about on this episode. Oh yeah, but people didn't hear about it, but they get to hear about it now. <laughs> Ooh. Yes, uh, I uh, I am just coming back from uh, Otakon from what a week two weeks ago, and uh, just finishing up Anime Festival Orlando from uh, as of this recording yesterday. Yeah, and that is doing cons in sort succession is always always crazy. Uh, for example, I remember a couple of years ago I went to Dragon Con, then immediately going to AWA like oh the week and a half later. Yeah, that that's rough. I mean, when you don't have a weekend in between to buffer or at least, you know, get your things together, um, even then, that that's tough, especially if you're, you know, involved in it in some way, like doing panels or or whatever. Yeah, and uh, Dragon Con. Dragon Con is a trip. Like, I thought, well, Otakon is not exactly cheap to get to, but, but Dragon Con is even less cheap to get to. Because for one thing, the, the hotel rooms are usually, if you even, unless you're going like, as long as you don't mind going like, you know, thirty minutes or an hour out of your way to get to like a really cheap hotel, the hotels, you know, the convention hotels are like three hundred bucks a pop. You pretty even much, with friends. Yeah, and you pretty much got to book immediately after like the last one to get a room. You know. Yeah. The con badges are you know eighty to hundred bucks. And I can't just go, well, hey, guys, I've got a podcast. And they go, whatever. Podcast isn't real media. <laughs> Get out of here. <laughs> and so. Yeah. 
and and there that's where you see that like the anime wor- world of anime podcasting has has not mingled very well with the world of sci-fi and genre podcasting. Well, it's true. Well, I think in, in Dragon Con's case is that since they have an entire podcasting track, you really can't just go, well, I'm a podcast because guess what? So is a whole lot of other people. Yeah. And that's probably a good bit of chunk of their revenue are these people going to that podcasting track. And so you probably have to be a little more substantial as far as media goes. And there's a few people there who like, there's like the two people in America that are able to make a living off of podcasting there. Yeah. 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 Of course. The thing that we've all tried to do so hard, but well, some, uh, I gave up on that, that dream long ago. Yep. (laughs) I'm just happy if it keeps getting me into anime cons. Uh, But, you know, that said, also a lot of their podcasting stuff is also more audiobooks. They just call podcasts, you know, there too, where a lot of people are doing mm. what they're doing is they're more or less, they've written, you know, authors have written their books and now they're just breaking off into chapters and giving each chapter its own little unique little podcast really? as an episode. Yeah. Okay. That's an idea. Uh, some of them are more inventive than others. Like some will actually sort of turn into almost like radio shows. Well, they'll sound add in effects, like, and, uh, sound effects, music, that sort of thing. Yeah. Spruce it up a little bit, but no, that's that's like an entire whole category of podcasting that they that they serve at Dragon Con. Wow, I'm just completely yeah. out of the loop as far as non-anime podcasting goes. Okay, <laughs> yeah, and so you have there like once I one the one time I went to Dragon Con, so, so it's like, oh, I do Firefly and, and Serenity and all and a lot of Joss Whedon stuff. Well, I do a lot of Star, you know, Stargate and. You know, people are like, well, I do Battlestar Galactica, and what do you do? I'm like, well, I do animated video games, and they go, oh, that's Yeah, cute. because, I mean, there are podcasts that go there that have been doing, like, weekly or bi-weekly podcasts about Firefly since the mo- the show came out, like, years ago, and still find new content. Like, like, I don't know how they do that. Like, I mean, they just go through the scripts go, okay, well, we're going to talk about this one line now, and what its effects were, and after... The- each episode or something. Yeah, we're good. we're going to talk about this hat for about three or four episodes. <laughs> Isn't this a nice hat? Like yes. it, its its contour is very nice. Well, I'm sure you can get months of material just out of Malcolm Reynolds' coat. So you know <laughs> his brown coat. His brown coat and I already uh, feel dirty. And rivers bare feet or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> We're now admitting to knowing way more about Firefly than we probably oh. should have in an anime podcast as oh, type yeah. thing. But it's just about the only Joss Whedon show that most people agree was actually good. So, yeah. Oh, I'll, there's about six good episodes for me. Yeah, I'll, I'll take six. Yeah, I can I can agree with about six. But so yeah, that was so that was Dragon Con, and I think I want to Dragon Con again. But the next time I, I go to Dragon Con. I don't think I'm going to focus so much on the the anime side. Like I said in our previous recording that you never got to listen to, I think a lot of it really does have to do with the fact that AWA exists so close to Dragon Con that if you really want your anime fix, you get your own entire convention just to that. As whereas Dragon Con really is several each track of Dragon Con could be its own convention. I mean, this place does take place in the, in the middle of five hotels. Each hotel more sort of hosting its own track or two. Yeah, you could probably you know time travel from the end of Dragon Con to the beginning, follow a new track, and never run into yourself ever. 
<laughs> so, so clearly what you're saying is that you need to skip Dragon Con if you want to go to AWA, and if you want to go to an, an anime, a, a convention in Atlanta, you just need to go to Frolicon instead. <laughs> well, that depends if, if you're really wanting to get laid and you're not quite sure how to do it. <laughs> and, and just make sure you bring protection. Or if you really wanted to see exactly how to in, in, inject saline into your nutsack. Yeah, yeah, probably. I could live a long, happy life without knowing that, I think. But um... <laughs> So I need to book you a room, right, Kevin? I mean, that's, that's what I'm hearing. Maybe when I finally get my car, because I suspect I, I'd be going by myself. But no, I think I think Dragon Con is, is just fine if you are looking for other stuff. Like, I think it is probably, you know, for example, if you like... You know, anime are is Japanese cartoons. I would say go to Dragon Con and just check out their cartoon track, because how often do you get to go to a convention to talk about non-Japanese cartoons? Like, well, if you like My Little Pony, apparently you can go to any anime con now. <laughs> Why? I, I hate to say that, <laughs> but you're right. Um. So I guess we'll we'll take that as a cue and go straight into the moment of awesome. It's a Awesome. So, speaking of going to AnimeCon to have My Little Pony panels. I actually just came from Anime Festival Orlando, a awesome little strappy con in uh, Orlando here. Actually, technically, I think it's in Kissimmee, but I'm not too sure. We're all so close together. That's been going since about 2000, and uh, I go there every year, and uh, it's always held like the week before or the week after Otakon, and this year... Um, I did about three or four panels, so got had a lot to do there, and it was a lot of great fun. And so you did go to the My Little Pony panel, though? Yes, there was a My Little Pony panel, and I went there, and it was nuts. There were, I mean, it was it was a party. There were, there were balloons, there were two rain, people dressed as Rainbow Dash there. One of them was a guy. Um, there were, uh, they had like singing and theme songs and it it was really just out outrageous i've uh i've never been to i mean i stay away from like the massive panels anyway but i was just curious about this one and just everybody was there and it was nuts and so now i'm very worried because i was asked the very next day if i could assist in running the My Little Pony panel at Anime Week in Atlanta. Ooh, um, no, not AWA. So are, are you going to dress up as Rainbow Dash? Uh, are you going you're talking, to... You're talking to your co-host, right? <laughs> <laughs> now, now was, there, was there any filking going on? Like, was there any, like, folk songs based on My Little Pony? Uh, no, they were all... Ex- they're all directly from My Little Pony. You got to see... It, the, the panel was hosted by two guys, and most of the people who were singing were guys um and uh, but this one girl did bring a uh, like a printed out piece of fan fiction called cupcakes which i don't know anything about until this other girl in the audience started talking about it which apparently is where pinkie pie makes cupcakes out of the other ponies what um, <laughs> oh my <laughs> There must be something more to this My Little Pony thing than I, I can grasp. But <laughs> I, I, I seriously would not think that in 2011 that we would be that this would be like the big thing that nerds would be going for. Yeah, I, I never would have guessed. 
Like, if you had told me, like, Leo, year, even a year ago, that, hey, you know, the big thing in geekdom is going to be My Little Pony, I would have been like, you are fucking crazy. <laughs> <laughs> but, but no, apparently My Little Pony is the hot shit mm-hmm. of, you know, mm-hmm. that if you want to be in, you be one of the cool geeks, you like, you like girly ponies. I like some... Did you say one of the cool geeks? Yeah. Yes, one of the cool kids. One of the hip cats. <laughs> yeah. One of the, the jive <laughs> peoples. I'm running out of yeah. slang. I don't know what the kids call these things these days. I watched Sailor Moon. I watched Utena. I, I even watched a good bit of the Powerpuff Girls, but I, I think this My Little Pony is a little too girly for me. <laughs> like, I, I I know I've seen an episode, and it was pretty decent. I, I It was fun to watch. I don't know... If I watch more, if I would also suddenly have to, you know, I had to bust out and do my own Satoshi Khan pony rendition or what? <laughs> Where the ponies stand around and, th- and, you know, wonder if they're in a dream or if they're not in a dream. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, they, and then have Christmas and be a hobo. That was an awesome. actual character in the show. I would watch it. <laughs> oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. Luke. But anyways, so what panels did you do? Um, I did a uh, well. I assisted Clarissa with the gambling anime panel. Uh, we talked about like Kaiji and Akagi and such, and uh, we talked. And then um, I did a mecha modeling panel, mecha modeling 101, a proper 101 panel. And uh, I did a. Uh, I assisted in a sci-fi, um, science fiction in anime panel and a uh, JRPG panel. Now I'm really interested in this whole. Um... This 101 panel, because, once again, it's in the previous episode of the Ospcast. <laughs> um, I, you know, the whole art of the model kit, I think, has lost a lot of fans coming into anime today. And I bet they see these things and go, oh, God, I don't know where to even begin. Yeah, it's really weird, because I go to cons, I see lots of these model kits for sale. I see people buying them, but I don't ever hear about people talking about mm-hmm. them. Or, or anything beyond that. And uh, so I decided to do a panel. I went to a panel at uh, Boston that was very well-intentioned, and the guys definitely knew a lot, But and they labeled it as a 101 panel, and it was, like, way beyond that. And so I really wanted to do a panel for people who had looked at these things or were interested in them and just didn't know where to start or didn't know what to expect. Yeah, I, I, I jumped into a... Gunpla models with a, a Gundam X model back about when Gundam X was new. Um, and mm-hmm. to be fair, you know, just have the diagrams to go on, but it was a few models. I had to put together a few models before I didn't have to break up the super glue at some point. Yeah. And uh, back then, the if that's, you know, Gundam X, so that's like early, mid-90s. Yeah, right, right about. So, like right after, yeah. about the same time Wing was starting to air in the U.S., yeah, so that's like 94, so something like that. So, yeah, the, the kits were not nearly as well engineered. Like today, you can, yeah, the newer you can ones get are really nice, nice kits without, <laughs> yeah, really nice kits without any needs for uh, for glue or anything, and they look pretty and The good. one I got didn't need glue. It just ended up needing glue. <laughs> Accidental glue, I see. Yes. Yeah, I, uh, I'm hoping that... Uh, I mean, it's it's weird because the model kit thing is kind of a leftover thing from, like, the 70s and 80s. And uh, it's it's probably not going to gain any fans. But um, 
it's uh, it, it's interesting to talk to the people who are really, really into it. Well, I think one of the things with Model Kits, I think there's, I, I do think just the, bear, the, the at least the assumed uh, point of entry is, is, is high for most fans to realize because, or maybe I'm wrong, I don't know. I think if I saw a Model Kit and realized that I had to put something together, I'd be like, well, I'm not sure what to do with this thing. But I bet there's probably so many like online tutorials and stuff nowadays that you can probably find that would help circumvent that. But I don't know how much you know online googling people do about these things. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's not like there's a very obvious like destination to go to to find out for the, about that stuff. And it is a very it is a very short road with gun with plastic kits for going from new fan to maniac. So it's it's that I hope that there are more one oh one panels like that. Yeah. So how is it, you know, um doing sci fi stuff with a uh, Worldcon extraordinaire? Yeah, I was hosting it with a this guy who goes to Worldcon every year and he even goes to our local literary sci fi con. Um so naturally he's a guy at least in his forties. Right. Because um, no one under forty goes to those cons. <laughs> right. Um and uh it was interesting. He had a different sort of approach to it. Um, I would have started science fiction with about space battleship Yamato. Mm-hmm. Um, he started it way back at Astro Boy, uh, which was interesting because there was a guy in the audience, this older guy in a wheelchair, who watched Astro Boy when it was on TV. Um, he, he was also he had also played through Final Fantasy Thirteen twice. Wow! And and seen all of Gotcha Man, so he had a lot of free That's time. A strange combination. <laughs> Wow. It was really weird. It was uh, this this guy I'd never seen him before, but uh, yeah, just was kind of the everything person. How could anyone play through thirteen twice? I I know I'm battling to get through it once. <laughs> like God, uh, I got about one and a half. <laughs> I don't know how you got through the first time. Like like thirteen was just oh, I just could not stand that story. But I'm pretty sure that I've complained about this the last time Gerald was on. Not the recording that we messed up, but our last actual recording with Gerald on it. And so uh, I'm not going to get into it this time. Well, I have a simple answer for completing the game once. Implied lesbianism. Yeah, that's that's kind of what you need to get through that sort of game. Uh, I could see that. I could see that. How did the uh, JRPG panel go? Pretty well. Um, basically, I, I know a lot of the they they oftentimes hold a panel like that at a convention. I was trying to take a little different approach to it. Like I did a a history of light RPGs, uh, which is you know console RPGs are generally considered light RPGs. And mm. um, when I researched it some more, I was like, well, you know, I was quite fascinated because we always consider like Dragon Quest to be kind of the old standard, the old crusty standard for RPGs today, or like for console RPGs, because it just hasn't changed much. Right. But uh, when you look at what was around at the time and when it came out, it it was really incredible, like the stuff that it came up with, because PC RPGs prior to that were awful, like horrible to play. Right. Um there were no menus. You just had to have your guide, your instruction manual with you, and you had to type everything in. And there was no explanation and very little storyline. Oh, yeah, like Dragon Quest really, you know, yeah. set the standard for what, it, what a console RPG would be. Like, just, just period. It was 
very much sort of like the same thing where Mario sort of set the rules for platforming. You know, yeah, and yeah, the, I mean, he, what he was trying to do, what Yuji Horii was trying to do, was create an RPG that anyone could play. That it didn't require that you were that you you were some super nerd who could just remember all of the different spells and such. Uh, like there, there were some RPGs out there where you would get items, like gain items, but it wouldn't give you an item list. Like you just had to remember throughout the game what your items were. I remember playing Wizardry on the like on my first computer I ever owned, and yeah, if you did not know what the names of the spells were, you just couldn't cast them. <laughs> yep. You and uh, if you lost the the instruction manual, you were screwed. Yeah. Yeah, this actually reminds me a lot of, um, for my local con, Hamacon, uh, for our first year I did a um, Eats Meets, Meets West um, RPG panel where I sort of compared and contrast more the Western RPG philosophy to the Eastern RPG philosophy. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, the whole, whole dra- you know, whole, you know, that sort of thing where how the whole Dragon Quest sort of, you know, set the standard, I sort of, you know, came, sort of the same topic. In a lot of sense, because that's really where I really I came from was what was on the east, you know, the Dragon Quest, Final Fantasy, you know, early Final Fantasy side. Yeah. Whereas my yeah, I'm... Oh, go ahead. Where my my co-panelist was much more on the you know Western, where he played wizardry and stuff. Although we met together at Baldur's Gate because <laughs> yeah, Baldur's Gate right. was awesome. So yeah. But yeah, so it's it's always interesting to see how the those kind of panels go because. You know, JRPGs have, I think, in many ways, influenced anime way more than RPGs now influence. They influence anime a lot, and anime doesn't quite influence RPGs so much anymore. No, well, I mean, I was doing the panel really because, uh, I mean, really because of Final Fantasy XIII. Right. And the Final Fantasy XIII is kind of a, a barometer for the industry, the Japanese RPG industry, and to a lesser extent, the Japanese games industry. And um, 13, while it did sell a lot of copies, it was generally considered, you know, not terribly successful in terms of being a good game. And that that was uh, what sparked a lot of discussion, and people have been saying, uh, you know, is are, what's going on with JRPGs? Are they, are, are they kind of coming to an end? or at least an end as a marketable sort of thing. Um, all of this really came out because of um, Final Fantasy Thirteen. Yeah, it, it's it's true, especially now with the whole, you know, Operation Rainfall with The Last Story and Xenoblade not coming out to America. Yes. You know, it, it really isn't a new conversation, like how relevant is the Japanese role-playing game? Yeah, they actually. I actually uh, was uh, looking at that as well, and it was really pretty sad because a lot of that is due to the fact that um, they, they believe is due to the fact that uh, JRPG fans tend to be nerdier, and nerdier guys tend to know how to uh, mod their systems, and they tend to know how to steal games, and that and for JRPGs that every sale counts, that can be devastating. It can be. Also, today doesn't help that the, currently the U.S. dollar is crap compared to the yen. Yeah. And I think that has a lot to do with it. I think the fact that you can't, you know, think those companies are realizing that, well, we could sell these copies in America, but are we going to really actually make money in America? I think that's one of the reasons why we see these games coming out in Europe 
because right now the euro is much more competitive than the dollar is right now compared to the yen. Yeah. Damn it. I want my Xenoblade. <laughs> yeah, I want to play that yeah, too. Yeah, me too. It's it's I want to play it. But what I have been playing is Ease Oath and Filgana, which is a game by Falcom for the PSP. And I've had it for a while. I had it when it first came out. I just hadn't had a chance to play it until recently because mm-hmm. I had loaded my PSP off for someone else to play a different Falcom game. <laughs> and it, it's, it's fun. Um, Ease is a very long-running series, you know, back original PC engine and computers and beyond from Falcom, who's made RP- role-playing games and stuff for the PC and other consoles for years and years and years, decades upon decades. Mm-hmm. And Ease, uh, the Oath of Felgana, is actually a port, uh, a remake, more, I should say, of Ease 3, which was actually on the Super Nintendo. And that one on Super Nintendo was actually a side-scroller. It was much more reminiscent of Zelda 2, where they were trying to sort of see what they can do with a break from the formula, try some new stuff out, see if people like it, liked it. Yeah, something um, about that one put me off when I saw it on Super Nintendo. It put Nintendo. off a lot of yeah. people. People, kind of like how Zelda 2, was like, I don't want this side-scroller thing, I want my top-down thing. Yeah. The thing is, I never played Ease 1 and 2, but whatever. At least not at that point. Well, Ease 1 and 2 are their own special butterflies, because you don't actually have a sword button. Yeah. You actually have to ram yourself into enemies at special angles in order to damage them. Yeah, that was fun. <laughs> um... Yeah, Ease One and Two. Ease was interesting. Well, it was it was one of those things where it was those were original computer games. Yeah, and so you were using the arrow keys. Yeah, I didn't I didn't play that till uh, the Wii Virtual Console had them for download. <laughs> um, but this remake is made for was made originally for the PC, but Falcom themselves ported it to the PSP, and so this is a much more modern remake. It uses um, the graphics are much more contemporary. It uses 3D. Uh, polygon graphics for like the actual environments with sprites as the characters, and it plays like a top-down game, like all the other previous Ease games do. Huh. I, I had a TurboGrafx 16, and I remember hearing a lot about the Ease games, but I never picked one up. Well, Ease, one of the things was because, especially once you got the the CD versions uh, for I believe the Turbo Duo, um, they because of that, they were able to use the CD stuff. For the early games like that, they really used the CD format was for amazing, high-quality, great-sounding music. Because that was just the easiest way to... They have all the space. What we're going to do? Well, we can just straight-up throw some Redbook audio onto it and have some amazing-sounding tunes. And so Ease music is just phenomenal to listen to. Also... Even now. Ease 1 and 2, at the time, that's a fairly impressive animation to go with it, but... Oh, yeah, they also had animated cutscenes that looked really nice. Again, because they had that CD medium to play around with, they were able to do this sort of FMV-esque animated cutscenes, which for the time was very new. I mean, before then, the the coolest thing you could see was, you know, the various cutscenes you would see in probably Ninja Gaiden. Yeah. And so that's what really sold Ease for what Ease sold, because no one bought Turbo Graphics. Yeah. Yeah, no... (laughs) I was I was the only person I ever knew with one. Like the only way I played it was I was playing in my old Toys R Us when I'm growing yeah. up. The only uh, actual playing of Turbo Graphics games I've done again, as I said, was once Nintendo started putting on the Wii Virtual Console. Yep. But this game and and Ophelgana is interesting. For one, every a lot of it actually has dubbed voiceovers, and I felt like I was back in the '90s again, <laughs> where the voices were 
just this side of competent. I, I couldn't call them great. I couldn't call them terrible. But it was obviously, you know, they weren't given the greatest of voice direction. And it felt... Uh. It, it was that kind of sort of like some of that old ADV stuff <laughs> where you could tell the actor's heart was in it, but they weren't quite sure what they were doing either. Okay, here's your list of lines. Read them. <laughs> and so that's interesting. Uh, but the actual gameplay, it's pretty good. It What it does is you it plays a lot like... If you imagine like Zelda: Link to the Past, that sort of you know o o o o uh, overhead, top-down gameplay. Uh, but the more enemies you plow through, a you get more bonuses, like you might get strength up, defense up, that sort of thing. And then you also get a thing that will up your experience faster. And so if you can plow through enemies faster, you will get more experience and plow your character more, so they can plow through more enemies. But if you wait too long between enemies, it'll all go away and start all over again. Mm. Which is fun. The, the downside is is that there's a jumping mechanic and the jumping isn't that great. Ooh, that can kill a game. It, it can. And now, it helps that you know about halfway through the game you get a double jump and that suddenly makes everything way easier to work with. Also, as you go through the game, you start getting these magic bracelets, which allow you to use magical powers. And some of them can be used to combine with jumping, which makes a lot of the airborne enemies much easier to deal with. Before, when you had to jump and attack, and that was like that was kind of awkward. But once you get the sort of spin attack type magic spell, you can start the spin attack, then jump up, and you'll keep spinning while you're jumping. So you'll sort of turn into a whirling dervish of death wherever you go. And that fixes that problem. The more issue I had with it is that occasionally they'll put you in these areas where you'll be, you'll be on an elevated area where you have t tons of little like skinny um, platforms you have to run through, almost like little bridges. And if you fall off, you can fall down to the lower area. Then you have to sort of fight your way back up. And yeah. that can be not so much fun. Makes you think of the uh, couple of times where Xenogears decided it was going to be a platformer, but it was never intended to be a platformer. <laughs> no, those parts were painful in that game. Yeah. yeah, thankfully, most of the real platforming bits they throw into this game is after you get the double jump. And once you get the double jump and the ability to um, do your spin attack, you, it makes it much easier to navigate because the spin attack will keep you hovering in the same spot. Mm -hmm. So you won't immediately just fall. You can actually sort of almost fly over in short spurts over chasms. And then with the double jump, you also can double jump. So you can sort of spin, get out there, then jump afterwards to, to move yourself over. So you become much more mobile when they start really doing a lot of the actual platforming stuff. Oh, that's good. So what have you been playing or doing, reading, watching, Kevin? Um, well, after playing, getting to, well, playing, after getting to borrow your uh, Kindle for the ride-up to Otakon, the long, long ride-up to Otakon where I got to read the most recent Harry Dresden novel, which was good, um, I decided I needed a Kindle of my own, so uh, I got that, and that's been neat. Uh, the, one of the first books I got was the Japanese sci-fi novel translated English called Mardok Scramble by uh, To Urakawa, I believe. I may be mangling his last name, but... Uh, <laughs> but uh, have you seen the uh, anime of that? I have not. I'm uh, kind of looking forward to it. It's getting a U.S. release in September, I think. Um, they except on DVD. I think they promised a Blu-ray next year. Maybe they're going to compile the three movies. But 
In any case, it's going to be three movies. It was three books in Japan, but the American release put it together in a single volume, so about 700 pages if it was a real book, not a Kindle book. Um, and it, it is just, it is the most best heartwarming story about a love story between a cyborg prostitute and a super intelligent nanomachine mouse. Such a saturated genre. I know, but this one really puts an original spin on it. <laughs> but uh, it, it is a weird cyberpunk uh, dystopian future with a bit of a, a crime drama PI element, but uh, it's just it is bizarre. Like the the science fiction is almost into the realm of magical. So you do have things like uh, hyper intelligent mice who have been filled with nano machines and uh, flying sharks <laughs> with uh, gravity control devices and. The, the flying sharks one sounds like it would sell it instantly. Yeah, it's sadly only a tiny part of the book, but uh, it was a pretty cool idea. It's like, uh, this is like the best guard dogs we could think of, flying sharks. <laughs> it's uh, It works pretty well, actually. Um, but yes, it's... Except for about two-thirds of the book, it gets really bogged down in the mechanics of Blackjack. But uh, it is actually important to the story because it's mysteriously turned into a casino heist. <laughs> it does go through a couple mm. different genres as it goes along, although it eventually always comes back to uh, cyberpunk uh, action gunfightiness. But uh, <laughs> well, to be fair, there's only two real major ports or major portions are long-running fight scenes. But uh, it is a it is an interesting book with a lot of bizarre ideas. And yeah, I've heard good things about it. I mean, and I've, I've heard very yeah. good things about the movie too. It's uh, it's from the same, the author also uh, is the main, was the guy who pretty much came up with the story for Chevalier to Aeon and Heroic Age and a few other, what I would call interesting series anime. Um, but yes, it is different, especially since they, most of the time it's a bleak dystopian cyberpunk future. There's also a talking mouse. Who wears people clothes? <laughs> hmm. But yes, it, it hmm. is a strange world. Now, do you know if that character is a mouse to begin with? Yes. Or... He, in fact, was born in life as a mouse, and through military experimentation. And I'm actually, honestly, I'm just guessing nano machines because I can't think of any other way this would work. <laughs> he has been turned into a hyper intelligent, shape shifting. Mouse. <laughs> that would be my first choice. Who can create, uh, turn into different tools and create tools out of his own body, and <laughs> that is also, you know, at least people smart, possibly more so. Right, so we can just sort of create, you know, tools like just, yeah. I mean, anything, uh, like say, manipulate the air molecules around his body <laughs> to transform into seven different. Uh, personas. Well, he's and sort perhaps of. when he transforms, like suddenly there's a magical girl sequence where he gets naked. Well, no, well, no, but he can turn into. He does turn into clothes for the girl who's the protagonist. Oh, he's so it's a pervert mouse too. He's actually kind of self-conscious about it. <laughs> well, okay, so he's a kind-hearted pervert, but yes, uh, um, I mean he can like he turns into guns or tools like. Goggles, fire wait, 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 extinguishers. Guns? Um, you don't just casually mention that mouse that can turn into guns. That's like the best pet ever. Yes. Now. Except he can also create objects. Like he can 
I'm not sure where he gets the mass for this, which is what was puzzling to me, but he can create things and they'll be there permanently. They're not actually him in another form, but, uh, but he can also yeah that that is that is the realm of magic. But now. he can also be the object you're interacting with, and uh, like he can give active comments on what's going on, as he is like your gloves or something. I kind of want to play this as a video game now. It would make an interesting video game. Like I well, it, I'm looking forward kind of, to the anime. It kind of sounds like uh, if you guys have played um, Shadow of the Damned. Yeah. Um, I have, but I've heard about it. And that's what it sort of remind me of is, is Johnson. Yeah, Johnson, this yeah. flaming skull that turns into guns and various... It, it's, um, although I've not played that game, now that you brought that up. Yeah, it does seem not unlike that. Um, <laughs> just with many fewer dick jokes, I would assume. Yes. It, as far as I can tell with Offcock, the uh, mouse and the... Mardok Scramble. His only limitations on what he turns himself into seem to be that there are some things that are just outright illegal for him to turn into. Like, he can't turn into a rocket launcher. Not because he can't turn into a rocket launcher, just uh, he'd probably be arrested and destroyed if he did. Hmm. Well, well, you know, if people are running towards you to try to arrest you and you're a rocket launcher, <laughs> I think they're the ones who are in trouble. It's true. But speaking of being in trouble with fewer dick jokes... I think it's probably about time we get into our main topic conversation, Makoto Shinkai's Children Who Chase Lost Voices from Deep Below. Makoto Shinkai. And right before or around the same time he was working for uh, Falcom, he was he had won a uh, grand prize for the uh, DOGA CG Animation Contest for the short he made in 1999, which was called She and Her Cat. Now it's worth noting because he worked in the world of Japanese video games, he made like some regular like uh, virtual visual novel games and pornographic games too. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, well, if you work visual novels, odds are you have made a porn game. Yep. Whether you wanted to or not. <laughs> it's kind of like back in the day when you were a voice actor or voice actress. They went, hey, we have this thing called Cream Lemon. You want to do it? Well, I like money. It launched quite a few careers, actually. I like <laughs> I like to eat. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's like I just drew the backgrounds. I didn't draw any of the porn that you know of. <laughs> But so, while he was working as a graphic designer for Falcom, he decided that after doing one of the opening animations, he really liked this whole animating thing. And so he decided to be, to start his own um, animated production called Voices of a Dif Distant Star, which he pretty much did by himself. Which, 
even today is pretty incredible that it's one guy by himself because there had been other works that had come out by one person, but they were typically they looked very amateurish. They looked like they were made by one person, and they weren't did not nearly have the depth to it that uh, that Shinkai did. Yeah, like most stuff will look like flash animation or something, whereas Voices of a Distant Star looked like an actual traditional and your OAV. Yeah, you tell people this guy did it on his computer at home, and it's like, you don't believe it at first. <laughs> like, one of my favorite things yep. when I first saw this thing was like, holy crap, this is amazing. The very next day, I took it to my anime club and forced people to watch this thing. Uh, and I just told them it was good. And they're like, wow, Basil, this is really poignant. And you know what? What, Basil? This was made by one guy. And their whole room just looked at me like, what? Yeah, yeah. One guy. You know, the guy who was voice acting, that was him. You know what the chick was? That was his wife. Yep. Well, it was his it was his ex-girlfriend. Right, ex-girlfriend, that's right. It was his ex-girlfriend. And so Aaron was it's it's and he's and he's kept doing stuff. Like he, you know, is and he's sold it and he made money and he's kept going. He did a 90-minute long thing called The Place Promised in Our Early Days. He then followed that up that was done in 04. He followed up in 07 with uh, five centimeters per second. And then this year, he's released his newest movie, Children Who Chase Lost Voices from Deep Below. And while definitely he has gotten more people to actually help him, and he's now just, he's now a director, he's not doing every single thing by himself, he's still doing a lion's share of the work. Yeah, his name shows up under many credits. <laughs> Yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely not a big team. It's. Uh, it seems like a pretty small, intimate team that that work on these relatively big projects. Yes, that's a. It certainly. It looks like it was done by a major studio with a lot of people working on it. Yeah. Because let me tell you, first things first. This film is gorgeous, just absolutely beautiful. Yeah, this is one of the most beautiful looking movies I've seen in a long time. Like when I when I was sitting down and where we saw this was um so everyone knows, thank you, Otakon, for hosting the premiere. They also had Shinkai as one of their guests of honor. And they had this in their um high definition video room. So it was a gigantic screen. No matter where you sat, it was a great seat. It sounded wonderful. Yeah, it was it was a real treat to see this, and that that was the like English premiere was yes. even better. Yeah, yeah, pretty much in what was movie theater quality seating. And I was actually really surprised. Like coming to Otakon, I knew that I really liked what Makoto Shinkai does, but then to see the line of people waiting to see this movie and watching this gigantic room that that hosts over three thousand people to fill up, mm-hmm. you know, to watch this man's film. That was, it, there was an, there was excitement there, and I was, you know, I was not expecting it to be filled like it was. Like, I didn't realize how big this guy has gotten in America, or at right. least at Otakon. Like, I was very, very happy to see that. Well, I'm really glad that Otakon is getting those premieres. Like, we got um, Welcome to the Space Show last year. Right. So... That that was really cool to see. Like, well, this year, you know, we also, I mean, this was like, Otakon was like Premier Central. Yeah, we also had the Full Metal Alchemist yeah. movie, the Trigun movie, the American premiere of Maho Shoujo Madoka Magica. Yeah. And that was a... Like, but yeah, I definitely think this was the, the premiere to see. 
Yes. Well, I, I can safely say that, you know, Full Metal was a, was a very, very, very close second. But, man, just watching this film, well, it was, it for me, it was watching the film at the perfect place at the perfect time. Mm-hmm. And so, but to, to get into sort of the, the nuts and bolts of the story, it, it takes place in a more or less ambiguous time period of somewhat more or less modern day. Yeah, in the yeah, I mean, I rural guess town somewhere it, in Japan. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I guess when it takes place isn't important, but when uh, sometimes they, they like talk about some characters who did things in an, in an identifiable past, and so then that kind of got me wondering, like, when does this take place? Right. And so it stars, uh, more or less centers itself on Asuna, who is a girl in in school, I'm guessing high school. And I thought she might be late junior high, but it doesn't necessarily matter. She's. I thought she was a little kid, like lower middle school or something. She could be. No, we all have different ideas. She is an she is an age. Uh, definitely on the younger side of the spectrum. A minor. <laughs> we'll go with a minor. She probably uh, couldn't drink. Yeah, I would agree there. <laughs> um, and and you, it starts off, you know, with some breathtaking, beautiful animation of her running to get to this one spot and collecting her food for the day and her radio. And she gets up on this bluff that overlooks the mountains, which, of course, look beautiful. And she starts messing with this little um, radio-like thing that's got this kooky little crystal to it. And she adjusts it to hear this really ethereal, you know, sound that sounds kind of like something, sort of kind of like a some sort of animal noise, yet not like melody. This really just ambiguous but pretty sound. Yeah. I mean, she's clearly like kind of a nerdy character yeah this is, i mean it's just kind of your basic build your own radio kit except she's got this little crystal where the uh that thing that gets your radio signal that i blanked on normally goes and so yeah and then you know she then she moves on and you you learn about that her mom's a nurse and she's not always at home and so she's this girl has sort of learned to live on her own as it were or as much as a kid where you know all the Necessities are there to take care take care of for her. She just has to like you know the food's there. She just has to cook it, you know. Take wash her clothes, make cook her food, you know. She could take care of herself, you know, more or less as much as a little kid could. Probably more than most little kids can. Probably more than I could when I was yeah. Well, whatever she is, <laughs> you know. Sometimes I think she might take care of better herself than I take care of myself now. <laughs> You know, oh. I know she takes better care of herself than most guys. Yeah, she's got that. that little secret hideout by that bluff. She can probably live out there. I know that she doesn't have a computer, and next to it is a pile of Taco Bell wrappers. Yeah, so that's true. And so she goes to school. She's got friends, and then next thing we know, Darby bears afoot, and you best be worried about these bears because bears don't like little girls. Yes, especially. Cyber bears, or whatever this thing, or is. our magical monster bears. It's vaguely yes. the creature is vaguely bear-like. 
Now, up until this film, you know, a lot of people have sort of compared this this to, to Ghibli stuff. And I won't say that the comparison shouldn't be made, but that for you to realize that when this comparison is made, I feel it's made as a really big compliment. Yes. And up until that that the bare moment, it it was very much a Ghibli It's going to have been Kiki's Delivery Service or Whisper of the Heart up to this point. <laughs> Yeah, and then then it was uh, Princess Mononoke suddenly. Yes, where this bear, you know, was not. This bear wasn't messing around, and then suddenly a man, a mysterious individual, with long, pretty hair, comes to her rescue, and then wastes this bear thing something fierce. It's not so much a bear as a big thing that's fakely bear shaped. <laughs> Yeah, and it was pretty gruesome, too. I mean, its jaw got ripped off and blood was pouring all over the place. Animated in lovely detail throughout. <laughs> beautiful. It's the most beautiful dismemberment of a giant bear thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and suddenly you realize that you're, you're not in Kansas anymore. That this film is a completely different thing that's going forward than you thought it was. And as... The movie starts going on, you discover there's, you know, there's this whole new special mystical land that's underneath the earth that, um, Agartha, that where all the legends of the world has come from. And there's a place that you can resurrect lost ones. And there's a mysterious organization that's trying to get to it. And there's people who come from that land. And it's, you know, and suddenly you're like, okay, this is not so much. Ghibli anymore. Now it's much more Indiana Jones. The first three films. Yes. There were more? No, no, of course there weren't. Of course there weren't. Oh, of course. Yes. There's all in, there's only three Indiana Jones films. They were basically all good. <laughs> only three. <laughs> <laughs> and so in she meets a person from this land and, and due to various misadventures ends up taking a journey with somebody else in this land of Agartha, where the majority of the film now takes place. And they're off, and the guy is who she's traveling with really wants to resurrect um, his dead wife. Reminded me a bit of the, uh, at least the novelization of Brave Story, where they spent a good chunk of it establishing the normal world before they got to anything really supernatural. And yeah, that guy was such a strange character too. Like he he bordered on kind of insane. Well, yes, uh, I, I would go with insane. I mean, he's, or maybe not even bordered, but uh, yes. I, because you could get the you got the sense that he most a lot of the film was spent in I guess what I would call lucid moments where okay we're here in this weird world I, I've got to be responsible for this little girl I've got to try to keep her safe as best I can I basically like her. But later in the movie, it gets a little weird near the end. Well, well, you know, without spoiling anything, not like, you know, pedo weird. No, no, it. just you, you then go, you have to contrast that with what his new priorities seem to be as you get near the end of the film. Well, not even yes. new priorities. This well, man, they were his priorities to begin with. Th but. This man is very, very driven. Like, he is, come hell or high water... He is going to resurrect his wife. 
that is the one single solitary thought that's going through his brain during the entire film. Yes, he doesn't mind making considerations for other things as long as they further that goal. But if anything gets in the way of that goal, he's going to... Uh... And, and as time goes on, you do see conflict with him. Like, he starts really, really getting used to our main character, Asuna. You know, he's starting to really like her. He's sort of, sort of thinking of her sort of as a surrogate, you know, daughter. He, he's definitely starting to wonder... I think he never loses sight of what his goal is, but I think, you know, the inklings of second thoughts are sort of slowly sprouting in his in the back of his head. Yeah, he's not just a one-dimensional yeah. driven fanatic. Like, yeah. No. No, there's more to him than that, which does make him make him an interesting character. Yeah, and then there is um, Shin, who is the, I think, the third real character that they follow, who is a member of the Agartha race, as it were who is sort of trying to keep tabs on these two characters and are trying to keep them in check so that the other forces of this of this world don't just waste them. Because right. they're intruders in this realm, and they're not supposed to be in this realm. And if they don't leave, they, they have to be evicted yeah, they're going forcefully. Because they're, uh, they're threatening the delicate cosmic balance of the world. <laughs> i.e. the people in this world don't really want to grow. So yeah, no. They're kind of jerks, except for... Yeah, the, the, there was one plot point there. I, I really don't want to talk about it too much, because I guess it's kind of a spoiler, but it, it did... It was, seemed like what they were doing was contradictory... Contradict, contradicting the problems they were having, or at least making the problems they were having worse. Yeah. Um, and... One of the things about this film that was kind of weird to me when I was watching it was I, I knew that the, the guy, I knew what, why he was there. I understood very well easily what his purpose in this movie now was, what he was doing to drive the story. Um, Asuna, I wasn't quite sure. As she knows that she's following along, but even she's not quite sure why she's doing it, only that she is. She often kind of gives the impression of being along for the ride. <laughs> mm -hmm. which, which is kind of interesting for a main character to do, because normally when you have a main character, usually they're the, one that are, they're the ones that are moving the plot along. It's not they're the ones that are along for the ride. But by the point, once you get to the end of the movie, suddenly it makes much more sense, and that the reason why she's there is because she's trying to figure it out herself. And by the end, she does realize why she's there, why she wanted to be there. And it sort of clicks with the movie. And it, it sort of, you know, it worked for me. You mean, okay, the, the, you mean the movie as a whole? Right. Yeah, the more that I think about the movie, the more I think I like it. Um, Makoto Shinkai was... Before this movie came out, he was kind of worrying a lot of people because he seemed to be kind of repeating himself over and over again. Right. Um, and it seems like he recognized that, and he did try something very, very different with this movie. Yeah. And for that, I give him a lot of credit. Yeah, and it's very obviously that this guy wants to tell stories. Yes. Now, whether or not – like, the story that he had going was very ambitious. Um I'm not sure if I feel like he accomplished that, but I think it still is worth the ride to check out how close he did get. Yes, it's a 
just certainly just even just on the art and art direction of the film it's probably worth watching just for that right yeah i think it's one of those cases where you know visually this this film is aces all the way through like mm-hmm. it is just a gorgeous movie from the beginning to the very end and the characters i feel the voice actors and stuff the as far as that goes they all do superb jobs of doing what they're doing yeah i as far as the just pure production values go, is this film is great. Yes. And I, mean, I do think the story is good. I think the the bones of the story is very good, and the implementation is at the very least pretty good to very good. Oh, yeah. It's, yes. I mean, if the animation and acting are, voice acting are like A+, plus, the story is maybe an A-. minus. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah. So for... So for me, like, even at some points, I might even give, like, a B-plus to it. But even then, I think it possibly a lot of people's, you know, thing is, is that people were, I think people were expecting an A-plus movie out of this. And I think what they got was more of an A-minus movie out of it. Yeah, um, I think that's that's fair. I mean, one of the things, I guess, that bothered me was that there were points in it like I, I don't it's it's hard for me to explain without spoiling anything and I don't intend to spoil anything but there were certain points in it where the emotion didn't feel genuine that if a loved one you finally got to see a loved one after a long period of time you wouldn't act like the characters in the film did I, I see it and I'll tell you what um, we'll talk about the film a little bit more and then we will do a, sm- a small a small spoiler section. That way, when okay. we can actually get into that into that that topic. Sure. Um, some of the things I do want to talk about before that we get into that is I th- thought I had a lot of really neat visual ideas in this film. Oh yeah, some of the visuals in this are, tr- are go beyond just looking beautiful to being like the, the sort of things that you just have never seen before. Yeah, like for example, um, one of the things I really liked when they were back in the town. You know, the the rural village was I, I it reminded me a lot of like an adventure game where whenever she would go from tr- uh, place to place he would he would he would show that movement of her running transitioning from screen to screen and he would always use the same camera angles for each scene like the time of right. day the people in it will change every time but the actual camera angle was the same. And so it really felt like this was one particular place, and I really felt like I was going through it. Um, then you compare and contrast that to when they're in, they're in Agartha, and then suddenly you never see the same thing repeated twice. It, it yeah. suddenly, it really, really hammers in that she's gone from this one small town to this gigantic adventure. And I really, I liked that contrast that he did with that. That was something I liked a lot. Yeah, I understand that he spent a year in England before making this movie, and it it felt like he was getting some inspiration from that. Oh yeah, I I, I could definitely say. That. Apparently, um, I want to say he went to the Nagano Prefecture um, to actually do um, to take like pictures and get the feel of the place uh, in order to create the small town. Like, he right. really wanted to make sure that it felt like an actual place that people lived in. And I felt he's totally succeeded in that. Like, the level of detail in, like, her house. 
I definitely felt like this was her house that she lived in. I felt that house had character, and it was character that she created by living in this house. Yeah, there, there was clearly, like, uh, some house that he found somewhere that he photographed a lot. Yeah. You know, and then some of the characters that he meets, um, I was actually reading a Q&A he did at Ocon that I didn't get a chance to go to. But one of the characters, he made sure that the character had a blanket because he really liked Linus from from Peanuts. <laughs> and so he wanted the security blanket there. And so, and just stuff like that. You know, it's definitely, there's a lot of really neat thoughts and themes in this film. And it's, uh, it's good stuff. Like, I really recommend um, I don't know when anyone's going to get a chance to see yeah. this film. Hopefully it'll come out on uh, DVD and Blu-ray sometime in the reasonable future here. Yeah, I know that uh, there was only just recently a DVD announcement for Welcome to the Space Show, and that we saw last year. Yeah, like, I, I have a feeling we'll probably see something for this probably next year. Like, I could see this, you know, I could see they're probably spend more time like at various you know film festivals and things to sort of give it sort of more of an international appeal before actually giving right. it a release and i mean to be fair it's a better movie than welcome to the space show uh, oh yeah like, from what i've heard yes i well, did not for, see welcome to the for space one show. thing this is you know two hours and not like an hour two hours and 30 minutes like yes uh, and well it, it also it uses that time well unlike welcome to the space show where about you know ninety minutes in, you're saying, okay, this is done about as much as it can. Let's wrap the story yeah, up. Another hour, <laughs> like yes. yeah. Where this film, you definitely you get the trip of this film. Really, is I think why why it's two hours is because they spend so much time in the first act in the small town to really get you into that space before. Yeah, I'm still kind of divided as to whether or not it could have been shorter. I, I know that uh, looking on the Q&A, they, they originally planned this to be 16 minutes shorter than it was, but mm -hmm. they wanted that they ended up adding the 16 minutes because they felt they needed to complete the story. And, and I'm wondering if maybe they could have trimmed, like a lot of, they do a lot of incidental shots here and there where they're just showing nature at play. And while they're cool to look at, I don't know if they, if all of those really had to be there to to fill the need of the story right i mean i i need to i think i need to watch it again i mean i get i'm one of those people that feels like not every movie out there needs to be two hours long and every movie you go to see at a movie theater is at least two hours um no, i but, i agree yeah like, I'm, I'm totally with the um i would much rather have i would much rather have an amazing movie and an hour and 30 minutes than a pretty good movie or even to a great movie that's two hours. Right. Like, um, yeah. You can tell your story in an hour and a half. Tell it in an hour and a half. If you can, if right. you can put it, what you have to put in there. Yeah, do not be the thin red line, which was like almost three hours long, and two hours of which were slow pans of waterfalls. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's a bit much. Yeah, exactly. Or, it's... you know, save that for the uh, extended extra version on the DVD that's optional to watch. <laughs> yes. It's true. So, all right, what we're going to do, everybody, is that we're going to take another break. And if you want to listen to our spoilers, you're more than welcome to it. Otherwise, I would say whenever this movie does come out, please, watch however it. you can, watch it. In a non-artsy, uh, non-critical observation, it has an absolutely adorable kitten in the film. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Was it Mimi? 
that yeah that, yeah that little like think, fox maybe. fox cat yeah that was that was that was great I'm never clear if that was an actual cat or an Agarthan creature that just happens to look like a cat that wandered into the outside world but either way it was an adorable little kitty. Oh, one of my favorite scenes of the film is the very beginning where she shoos the cat out, cat off, and the cat just walks around the outside yes. back into the room with another open door. Yeah, every scene that was very, very good. Yeah, every that. scene yes. this cat is in, it steals the scenes, and it was awesome for it. Well, in fact, I think now remember reading the Q and I think that cat was actually the representation of the security blanket, and <laughs> uh, because it was always there when she needed it to be there. Mm-hmm. And then when she was no longer needed around, that's when he left the cat where it was. So, okay. Okay, now we can... We'll now have a musical interlude, and then we will go into spoilers. I'm guessing the scene that you were referring to earlier was when he finally resurrected his wife. Yes, the scene where he resurrected his wife. Um, uh, that scene, the entire movie was building up to that, and that was, I mean, his entire like ten years of his life was building up to this. Right. That that was the one moment that I just I I felt like it didn't feel like it was being directed very genuinely there. Um, it it didn't feel like it didn't really feel like he had seen the person that he loved the most in the world after ten years. Right. I I, I definitely I can see that. I, I don't think I noticed it, it as much because it's something that uh, it's something that's hard to notice until like you've gone through that. Um, it's but uh, that that was the one moment in it that kind of felt weird and. I don't know if it was purposeful because that ca- that character that guy was so weird and distant anyway. Yeah, yeah. See, I think it's for me it's one of those cases where I was much more relating to Shin and Asuna than I was yeah. to him. Like, I think at that point he was so crazy, and also I think he might have been conflicted because I, I think when he realized that what had to be done to resurrect her was the moment that Asuna showed up. And then he he right. looked like, oh god, this is not what I wanted. No, like, and I well, think possibly some of it was him just being conflicted. Well, yeah, because that that was an interesting moment actually, because he, while he was upset that she was there, he also you could tell that he was not necessarily unhappy about it. Like, how do, how do I explain it? Like, like he didn't want her to be there, but if she's there, he's ta- he's taking it. Yes, like if he can if he can see his wife, you know, bonus. Yeah, like it was like you know she's already there. This is already going to happen. If he's going to see his wife, well, sorry, kid, that's the way the world works apparently in Agartha. So there you go. Yeah, 
and then when Shin got there, and I felt, yeah, I I know that again when I was reading that the Q and A that I was reading, he had mentioned that he had buried a lot of pets, so I don't know if you know. I felt the the children of this film felt way more authentic um, than he did, and so I'm wondering if it's maybe one of those cases where maybe he hasn't gone through the loss of his parents, maybe his grandparents. Maybe um, it's th- yeah. That was kind of the only point, and for all I know, it was purposeful because that that that, that guy was just so hell bent on this that yeah. maybe maybe he'd suddenly lost his purpose now. After she appeared, like and you know and, and really, so that we didn't really go through that review of this because it, the whole central theme of this film is in fact dealing with loss. Mm-hmm. Like and for um, Asuna, like it's the fact that she's lost this guy named Shun that she meets who saved her and he dies pretty pretty early on in the film, and she thinks his brother Shin is him, and also her father you know, had passed away earlier on in her life and yes. before she really understood how to deal with loss. Right. And so pretty much the end point of this film is the actual climax for her is her realizing what loss is, what does it mean to her, and, and how does she deal with it? And and how to keep going. Right. Like, like I, I think that... Um... I, I hate that I keep forgetting that that guy's name. Let me see if I can look it up so I can sound a little bit more professional. That guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Yes. He is just that um, guy. It's uh, Ryuji, was his name, I think? That, that sounds right. Um, he was <clears throat> almost like the, the the example of what you don't want to have happen. Right. What you don't. But you don't want, you to, don't want to be the guy who obsesses over that person for the rest of their life. Not yes, that you want that... to forget the people you've lost, but you, you can't obsess on what was. Exactly. That everybody is going to lose. That if, if you end up loving someone, that's only going to end in tragedy. Yeah. Like, there's no other way it can end. And um, that's... Like that very funny Louis C. Case thing where he said, you know, the best case scenario is that you will find the perfect person, you'll grow old together, and then she's going to die, and you're going to be half, and you're going to be sad. So, yeah, yeah, you cannot, you cannot obsess over that stuff. It's true, and so for her tale, I mean, not much. Um, Ryuji uh, Morisaki, yeah, it's totally Morisaki is what they usually used. They refer to him as. Uh, yeah. But Asuna, it's like her, you know, and, and Shins, they're they're getting on and moving, getting over with it. Totally felt way more authentic to me. And yeah. you know, and and Spirit of Full Disclosure, my my mom passed away. It was recorded like three weeks ago. Like it was two weeks after when I came to Otakon and watched this film. And that's why I meant this is the perfect movie, the right place at the right time. Right. Because, and I don't know if it was. Me just recently getting over this, or getting over this, I can't say that I'm over it, you know, and watching that happen to her, and her, that feel authentic, that sort of, that resonated with me, mm-hmm. like, like, very much so. And if that... Well, I mean, yeah, full, I mean, full disclosure, my dad passed away about two years ago. Mm-hmm. So I think we're, I think you might understand better when I, when I say something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. 
when, when it just doesn't feel like like this is you know ten years of him seeing his wife for the first time. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally, I totally see where you're coming to that now. Like, and I think for me, it's I just my brain was like, man, forget this guy. Like he's <laughs> yeah. obviously a stupid face, <laughs> yeah. and, and these characters, this like, guy's crazy. <laughs> this guy's crazy, and at that point, I was much more rooting for Shin to stop him, and I yeah. was him going, dude, what are you doing? This is totally not what you should be doing. This is not even the way you should be responding. I was much like yeah. Shunya, you you take out that guy. He needs to be beaten up or something. Yeah, it's like like dude, yeah, that's it's terribly sad, but you know you don't get over it necessarily, but you just have to learn to deal with it. That's what adults do. Yeah. So And and I think that's what Asana and Shin, especially especially Asana, she did. And yes. I know one of the central themes that um Shinkai wanted to convey was that from the very beginning of the film to the very end, Asuna is running, she's moving, she's constantly heading forward yeah. in her life um, to a destination that she does not know where, but that she must keep running to get to. Yeah, I think Asuna, I mean, she's got her dad had died in her background, and we're not sure exactly how long ago that was, but uh, and she probably doesn't really know how to feel about that. And then... Well, it, he died when she was about... I, I'm getting the impression that she was about, like, three or four. Yeah, like she, she, was didn't really, she didn't really know him, really. No. And, but... So she didn't really know what to feel about that. And then this Shun, this guy, came into her life for, like, all of a day. <laughs> and he was cool and interesting, and she may have even kind of started to like him, but then he was gone. Mm-hmm. And it was almost even just her abruptness of knowing... The, the so little time she knew him was almost as confusing of that was that loss even maybe more confusing because she didn't know what would have been and i and i rather wish they hadn't like killed uh mimi yeah they killed the adorable cat like, that i just said was adorable like yeah seriously I, i'm not even quite sure why he did that because i guess it was trying to show like the whole like circle of life thing in Argatha, because it, does it get was eaten by the weird little giant thing that then comes and helps our heroes a little later. But yes, like that's part of it, par- partially to maybe reinforce the theme of loss. Yeah, I'm guessing. Although I think one of the, one of the things I liked about the film a lot was the fact that in reality, Asuna is half um, Agarthan. Agarthan. <laughs> like it, it's pretty well. It, it's never explicitly stated, yeah. but pretty. Easily inferred. It's very easily inferred in the story without them even flat out saying it. Um, Which I love that that they never actually... In most films, they would have brought that up as a major plot point. But they never do. They just infer it. Which was Mm -hmm. great. And I think one of the things is that... I think that's why she she attached herself herself to Shun so quickly. Is probably at some sort of instinctual level, it probably related him to her father. Because he was also a Garthen. Mm-hmm. Right. And so and I think that's another reason why she wanted to go to this land is because this is... She felt drawn to she it. She felt drawn to it as part of her heritage, even though she doesn't know it. And then you have Shin, who's constantly having to drive after them, and because he won't immediately, you know, go after them the way they want them to, take them out, he's sort of casted out. <laughs> and so he's now also himself sort of a man from two worlds. Who is not who's not a friend to either. Hmm. Which is a totally, you know, separate, you know, theme they had throughout the film. But one again, it was one of those things where 
he had to learn to live with this and to get over it and to move on with his life. Yeah, another another sense he lost his uh, like his heritage or whatever. Yeah, his place in the world. Yeah. Um. So. So yeah, this this film it's, it's got a lot of themes to it. Like it's yeah. and that's one reason why I like it so much is because you know, he definitely thought a lot of the stuff through. I think. Um, like this shows me, um, I kind of have the same feelings about him that I have about Mamoru Hosoda, mm-hmm. um, in that they're both making good movies now. Mm-hmm. And I think that they are definitely on their way to making very like great movies later. Yes. Um, like there's some of the few talent in the anime industry that, that really does seem to have some really great potential. Yeah. Makoto Shinkai seems he's got some really good ideas. He's tried to he's tried to branch out a little on this one from what he was doing and his earlier works, and yeah. it maybe didn't come off perfect, but I think he's going to learn from it. Yeah, and I think it's not even it's a it's not even a bad movie. It's a movie. It's a good movie with some flaws. Yes, um, which is more than I can say for you know a lot of other things, and that that he recognizes that he needed to try something different. I'm I'm hoping that his next movie will be him attempting something else different. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I'm just so glad that because the way he got his start in doing this thing, that he's controlling his own production, which means that you know the anime industry can't just let him do something amazing and then just let him die. And well, and that's interesting as well because then when you are that close to your project. You're also directly responsible if it turns out that it sucks. Yeah, it's true. True. So like, there's he can't, has no one else to blame. Like, and so I, it is in that respect also pretty impressive that he constantly sort of you know puts his head out on the line, you know, whenever he makes his film. But so far, I think it's done really well for him. Yeah, and I yeah, I mean, I mean his other movies, the I don't know if you guys saw any of the other ones. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I thought that they were mostly pretty overly long in plotting with again beautiful animation right and maybe a good idea in 45 minutes that happened to go on for 90 minutes um but yeah this this one i think is where he he's getting the long the longer form narrative down yeah yeah definitely i think like well this is also his, his only his only second real full featured story like, you know, the previous, you know, five summary second was technically like three stories, you know, right. and then before this was, you know, the, uh, the place promised, which was 90 minutes. Yeah. And, and so for that, this is his second real movie, you know, is, is, is pretty impressive. Oh, it's, I think it's, it's an excellent, um, I'm not even going to say it's an excellent start. It's just very good period. Yes. Yes. It's, um, I mean, there are established directors that have made bigger movies recently that just were crap. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to what, what he's got down the line. Definitely. I really, yeah, I can't wait to see what his next film is. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. and, yeah I mean, even with a few complaints, there are so many moments in this film that were just absolutely incredible to watch. Yeah. And so I'm, I really do think he's, I'm interested to see where he goes because he's got a, a sharper edge to him than Miyazaki did, and he's starting from a different place. Like he's starting Miyazaki started as definitely a kids' movie director, mm-hmm. 
And this guy, like, this movie is a weird one to categorize, because I thought, you know, for a while I could show this to my nephew, who is about seven or eight. Right. And then there were scenes in it that I said, no, no way I can show yeah, this. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, and so it's that edge that I think makes him very interesting. Yes. And I want to see more of it. Like, it's definitely got, I can't say that he's like, you know, we're not, we're not talking like Ninja Scroll or anything here. No, but, but the, uh, the big creepy bear thing at the beginning that's awfully graphically violently dispatched. And, uh, later and in the, the movie, scene. there's those shadowy things, especially the dream sequence that they first, that precedes their first appearance. That... And what about that scene right before, um, Asuna gets into Agartha? When she's attacked by that giant lizard thing and those military oh, men yeah, shoot it. Yeah, blast the thing apart. I forgot about that. <laughs> and, and then there's just the shot that comes out of nowhere uh, where, like, one of the military guys, is, I believe it was uh, Ryuji, was just standing above the thing firing a bullet into its head yeah. while it was still dead. Like, yeah, there's. Yeah, he's, he's definitely got an edge to him. And yeah. I really, really cannot wait to see what he does next. Yeah. And so I guess to, to to wrap this up, movie is great, very good. Yeah, it's not perfect, but it's definitely very very worth seeing. Yeah, if I can get this on Blu-ray, I will. Um, yeah, hundred percent. Like, and I and I cannot, we cannot wait until to see what he does next, because you know, even though I felt this is a this is a high watermark for him, I think he still has nowhere to go yeah. but up. I think he can do better. Not to say this is bad, just that he's. I think he can get better. <laughs> and I mean, arguably, this is his best work. Yes. So, so that's saying quite a lot. So, yeah, I would, I would agree there. I, I think that he is, he's got him and Mamoru Hosoda are going to be vying for, you know, the great anime directors. Yeah. It definitely, especially you know, going on. Like, I think gives me, gives me some hope for anime in the future that there are some people like this around. Yeah. yeah. And thanks for talking with us, Gerald. Thank you so much, guys, for having me. Always a pleasure. And for everyone, we will see you next time.